Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. Yeah, it does. Listen, Floor shows up. She's a part Vila, has that Vila magnetism. Ron absolutely loses his shit. It's either her or Crumb. <laughs> the fantasies. We may talk about it. That's adult content, guys. And if you don't like that kind of thing, check out our friends Chris and Andy on The Watch. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know, why Mr. Ollivander never, 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 never works with Vila hair as a wand core. That's a different kind of wand. <laughs> oh, God. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. But Rita Skeeter had gone even further than transforming his airs into long, sickly sentences. She had interviewed other people about him, too. Harry has at last found love at Hogwarts. His close friend, Colin Creevy, says that Harry is rarely seen out of the company of one Hermione Granger, a stunningly pretty muggle-born girl who, like Harry, is one of the top students in the school. From the moment the article had appeared, Harry had had to endure people, Slytherins mainly, quoting it at him as he passed and making sneering comments. Want a hanky, Potter, in case you start crying in Transfiguration? Since when have you been one of the top students in the school, Potter? Or is this a school you and Longbottom have set up together? Welcome to Binge Mode yeah. Harry Potter. <laughs> I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. So good. <laughs> Joining me today, now yes. that he's finished interviewing his next feature subject mm. in the Ringer's broom cupboard. Come in here. Play room. Pull up a saucer. <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, mm. Jason Concepcion. Mal, ignore the quill, because it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you prefer the common Welsh green, a Swedish short snout, a Chinese fireball, or the famous Hungarian horntail, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, rate and review us five points and stars for Binge Mode. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, and which is an excellent place to swap tips on the proper form for a summoning charm. Love a summoning charm. I love to summon. Wish I could do that in real life. I know. Yesterday, on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how horizons expand in chapters 11 through 15 of Goblet of Fire. On today's episode, we're diving into chapters 16 through 20 of Goblet. Can't believe how far we are into this beautiful text already. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep! <laughs> On details from all seven books mm. and eight films and the wider Potter canon. Taking the entire series into account. Oh, yeah. From the moment the fourth champion reluctantly rises. <laughs> so mount your broom and take to the air. Because it's time to face a dragon. Mel? Yeah. <laughs> Could you ask me calmly, sir? I'm sorry. Let me ask you this. 
Are you ready to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Goblet Chapter 16 to 20 by climbing aboard this Scarlet Steve Engine to plot the Hogwarts Express? It's time to see who will compete Choo-choo. in the Triwizard Tournament. Yes. Or the Quad, as we're calling it this year. <laughs> Shouts to my dude Karker off. God. Tough hang. <laughs> the Goblet of Fire spits out the name of the champions one by one. Yes. Victor Crumb, obviously. Thick the dick. Flor de la Cour. Yeah, it makes sense. She's great. Cedric Diggory. Handsome. Handsome. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and then. Mm-hmm. And then. Harry Potter. Wait, what? What? Someone. In fact, most people think Harry has hoodwinked the goblet. But sorry, when the name comes out, the name comes out. As Ludo Bagman will tell you, <laughs> there are four champions this year. Sorry about it. Thanks to some illicit aid from Hagrid and Bardi Moody, Harry learns what he needs to do for the first Triwizard task. And finally, the late November day comes, summons his firebolt, dances through the air, and swoops past a vicious fire-breathing dragon to steal the golden egg and complete the task. He is tied for first place. Harry Potter. Shouts to Harry. Incredible work. <laughs> Jason? Yeah! Podcast and champion. Everything seems to happen to you, doesn't it? It's just wild how that happens. <laughs> And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme in chapter 16 through 20 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is isolation. So much isolation. Chapter 16, the Goblet of Fire. Ron is losing his shit over Vic Crumb, a.k.a. Vic the Dick. Hermione is like, man, you got to calm down. But Ron is genuinely over the moon about this. He's one of the best seekers of the world. I had no idea he was still in school. He is like, Vic is like LeBron. Ron's not the only one acting this way. Some of the female students are looking for quills and talking about what Crumb will sign and where Hermione says, really? Ron, shortly thereafter in the Great Hall, what do you reckon they're going to sleep? This is incredible stuff from Ron. (laughs) This is amazing. Where do you reckon they're going to sleep? We could offer him a space in our dormitory, Harry. <laughs> I wouldn't mind giving him my bed. I could kip on a camp bed. <laughs> or, you know, maybe just scooch over. No, he didn't say that. This place for a laugh. This is either pathetically charming or just pathetic from Ron's perspective. And it's also a pointed reminder that Crumb isn't just one of the kids. He stands head and shoulders above everyone else. Even among his own delegation, he's on a pedestal of isolation. Karkaroff, after the welcoming feast, says, Victor, how are you feeling? Did you eat enough? Should I send for some mulled wine from the kitchen so yeah. I don't have one of the other students rub your shoulders? Are you okay? You feeling loosened up? You need to stretch? You need anything? And then when... An, <laughs> this is wild shit. When another student brother. tries to get a taste of that, Karkaroff is like, just turns icy from the book, his warmly paternal air vanishing in an instant. It's worth considering that what this must feel like for Crumb. He's just performed on the biggest stage in the magical world, the World Cup. He's a famous, genuine celebrity, the best seeker in the world. But he's also a boy, a student, a kid looking to make his mark at school, and he can't even for a moment live just as everyone else. He's gawked at, pursued. Yes. The object of fascination and wonder, he is, in other words, much like Harry. And these two have yet to speak, but they're united by this separateness, this isolation, their respective standing as gods among mere mortals. It's true. No one is on stage 
quite like Crum among the visiting students, but still, all of the Durmstrang and Bobaton. Bobaton. Now I, can, <laughs> now I can only hear it in your voice. I just, for some reason, I hear it as like a Cajun man. <laughs> all of those students suffer some sense of isolation as they enter Hogwarts halls. They have each other, sure, but remember, they're not necessarily supportive classmates. They're foes. They're pitted against each other. They each know that the other members of their party, their school, that's a direct threat to their prospects for glory, for making the tournament. And then, of course, there's just the larger sense of feeling out of place, of feeling apart. These are older students. So in theory, they're more mature and better equipped to deal with something like this, but also they're at a more pivotal time in their own educations. They're all of age, which means this is their last or second to last year of school, of their magical education, and they're not with their friends. They're not in their own element. They're away from their friends. They're away from their castles. They're away from their families. They're in a strange place, around strange people, eating strange food. We get a nice moment that really encapsulates this when the Bobaton students settle at the Ravenclaw table and the Durmstrang kids, naturally, land at the Slytherin table. These facsimiles for their new families, just rented homes, real estate. And a Bobaton student, who we will come to know as Floor, (laughs) comes over to the Gryffindor table to ask for, are you guys done? Are you finished with the bouillabaisse? And while this scene plays out as proof positive that both Floor is a really a special kind of gorgeous, and we will learn in time that she is in fact part Vila, And also that Ron is a gaping buffoon. It also serves a more elemental purpose. It shows us a young person who is out of her comfort zone looking for something familiar, literally asking if she can have a little taste of home. And what of that Vila Drive response? When Ron sees Fleur, he, quote, went purple. He stared up at her, opened his mouth to reply, but nothing came out except a faint gurgling noise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, Ron. When she goes away, Ron says, she's a Vila, he said hoarsely to Harry. Of course she isn't, said Hermione tartly. (laughs) Right, he's had enough of this. I don't see anyone else gaping at her like an idiot. (laughs) But Harry notices other boys reacting similarly, and Ron pushes on. They don't make them like that at Hogwarts. What a fucking dumbass Ron is. Ron, sometimes the inside thoughts need to stay inside. You think he put that in his wedding vows? (laughs) Fucking dunderhead. (laughs) What does Harry say? They make them okay at Hogwarts, which I gotta say, also not a great... (laughs) They make them okay. I think from Harry, that's the equivalent of like... Deep romantic poetry. <laughs> Honestly, it's like, wow, hey, yeah. Wow. As, fucking Ezra Pound over here. Oh, my God, is maturing. <laughs> what a wordsmith. They make them okay at, at Hogwarts, said Harry, without thinking Cho happened to be sitting only a few places away from the girl with the silvery hair. We've entered the phase of our story where hormones are really the latest character to enter the stage here. <laughs> Everyone's getting it in the act. For some, like Ron, every rush of blood warrants a public declaration. This guy has no inner monologue at all. And Hagrid, as we will see, has a crush. He's wearing his finest, which finest is a relative term, attempting to smooth down his hair with grease, (laughs) bathing in cologne, gallons of cologne, then ditching Harry, Ron, and Hermione to walk up to the castle with the gigantic Madame Maxine. Love is in the air and something else is in the air. And in theory, that means 
coming together. Right. For Harry, though, his first crush is at this moment something that's very, very private. Another thing that's keeping him separate from people. Mm -hmm. His feelings for Cho are veiled at this point. We get hints at it. This, like the Voldy Wormtail plot against his life, (laughs) is something that he's chosen not to share with everyone. So many secrets, secrets and lies. Harry sees that the four extra seats at the head table are filled by Madame Maxim, Carcroft, naturally, and Barty Crouch, Luda Bagman. Yeah. Our tourney organizers. Great job, guys. Dumbledore rises to address the assembled. I would like to say a few words of explanation before we bring in the casket. Harry's like, the what? <laughs> Great start, everyone. You got to call a thing a casket? Dumbledore then explains that the three heads of school and two ministry officials will form the judging panel. And then... The casket is revealed. It's a great wooden chest encrusted with jewels. Quote, it looked extremely old. Dumbledore says that the three tasks will be spaced throughout the school year and will test the champions in many ways. Quote, their magical prowess, their daring, their powers of deduction, and of course, of course, their ability to cope with danger. No safer place. At this last word, the hall was filled with a silence so absolute that nobody seemed to be breathing. Danger. That's a word that is capable of canceling out all the noise around you. It forces you to exist in a vacuum where there's only room for you and your dreams and your fears. And everybody in the hall in that moment Mm -hmm. feels that way. I think calling it a casket, that's bad branding as well. Can we call it the case? A chest. A chest? It's like literally, we've worked very hard to keep mortal danger down. Now, everyone... (laughs) Here's the casket. It's <laughs> <laughs> very tough. Dumbledore also explains that the champions will be marked based on how they perform in each task, and the participants will be chosen by, quote, an impartial selector, the Goblet of Fire. And he pulls from the casket a large, roughly hewn wooden cup. It would have been entirely unremarkable had it not been full to the brim with dancing blue-white flames. The descriptions in these chapters are wonderful beautiful there's something so fitting about this an isolated decider an independent arbiter yes whose formulations we cannot understand right the one judge to rule them all is in many ways unassuming an object that could blend in if not for its dancing flames if not in other words for the magic that pulls it out of a mundane existence it's more than just a cup anyone wishing to enter must clearly write their name and school on a piece of parchment, and the goblet will, quote, return the names of the three it has judged most worthy to represent their schools. Mm -hmm. Dumbledore himself will be drawing an age line to ensure that no underage student yields (laughs) to temptation. No one at Hogwarts has ever yielded to temptation, so this should be fine. I know. I stake my (laughs) personal reputation on this age line. No one underage will cross it. Mark my words, Albus Dumbledore. Sidebar, wild to think that ask an older person is all it took to beat the age line? It's amazing. He continues, once a champion has been selected by the Goblet of Fire, he or she is obliged to see the tournament through to the end. The placing of your name in the goblet constitutes a binding magical contract. There can be no change of heart once you have become a champion. This, of course, is the key that Bardai's plan hinges on. Once Harry's chosen, that's it. He's in. He cannot get out. No escape. Thankfully, there is an escape from Harry's first off-puttingly charged moment with Kakara. When Harry lets him pass at the doors of the Great Hall, Igor freezes and stares at Harry. Think about what a weird thing this must be, right? Oh, yeah. For a 
convicted Death Eater to see there the thing that led directly to your leader's demise. In fact, the whole Durmstrang delegation is staring at Harry. And quite a charged stare, too. These people are sharing a ship with Victor Crumb. International sensation. And seeing Harry literally stops them in their tracks. We keep seeing that Harry's reach, his fame, is even more considerable than we'd imagine. It's worldwide. And that, of course, makes him feel not excited, not admired, not appreciated, but utterly on stage and alone. It does sometimes make him feel pretty good. But in this case, (laughs) it makes him feel very strange indeed. Very weird. The feast isn't raucous gluttony for once. No tuck-in from Dumbly. Everyone wants these plates out of here so we can get to the ceremony. Let's just get this on. And at last, the goblet is ready. The hall is plunged into a state of gloom. The goblet shining brightly. It's dancing flames, blue-white. Then they turn red. Sparks emit from the cup. A tongue of fire shoots into the air and a piece of charred parchment flutters out which Dumbledore catches. The champion for Durmstrang will be Victor Crumb. And everybody's like, of course. We get it. Right. Sure. Goblet turns right again. The champion for Boboton Bobaton. is Fleur Delacour. Again, naturally. Hermione notes that Fleur's classmates are a mess weeping with their heads in their arms. Look at the isolation that our champions are feeling. Vikram already raised above the rest of his classmates. They probably had no expectation that they would get in. For Boboton, clearly, everyone thought, I have a shot. So not necessarily a support system there. This is a budding rivalry among even their own schools. When it's time for the third and final champion, the Hogwarts champion, a silence fell, quote, so stiff with excitement, you could almost taste it. Then, the Hogwarts champion is Cedric Diggory. And Ron shouts, no! <laughs> Such a tough one. <laughs> I know, Ron. fucking Ron. <laughs> but no one hears because Hufflepuff is going fucking nuts. I love this. Too often, our puffies are overlooked. Yes, far too often. Far too often. This is, I mean, tough look for Puff to lose said <sighs> when he was his star was just descending. But let's give them their moment on the stage here. Here on the grandest stage these students have seen, one of their own has been deemed the most worthy representative of the entire school. What a great feeling for a house that, listen, to be fair, even in the books, gets short shrift, mentioned quite lightly. Often the isolated house and here in the thick of it all. When it finally quiets in the hall, Dumbledore says, I hope I can count on all you, you know? Yeah. Be good classmates, be good pals, support the three champions now that they've been selected. He's moving on into like it's tournament mode. But he stops speaking suddenly, and it is abundantly clear to everyone why. The fire has turned red again. That's not supposed to happen. But out shoots another piece of paper. Quote, Automatically, it seemed, Dumbledore reached out a long hand and seized the parchment. He held it out and stared at the name written upon it. There was a long pause, during which Dumbledore stared at the slip in his hand, and everyone in the room stared at Dumbledore. And then Dumbledore cleared his throat and read out, Harry Potter. Whoops. <laughs> Consider what must be going on in Dumbledore's mind in this moment. Mm-hmm. We do not think of Dumbledore as a man prone to silence. He is a man of action. Now, a man of withholding truth and information, sure, but ultimately not of silence, not of yes. stunned silence. He's a man of action. He is a man of confidence. He is a man of command and intent. That brilliance, as we will learn over the course of the series— 
particularly in his confessions to Harry at the end of Order of the Phoenix, in the revelations that populate Deathly Hallows, that command, yes, that knowledge can be a heavy, isolating burden. Here, however, Dumbledore is just like everyone else in that room. He is confused. And that is terrifying. How did this happen? What does it mean? And how can Dumbledore protect Harry if he doesn't even understand the rules anymore? Like I said, I think my guy is also a little embarrassed. He staked his reputation on this age line. But the age line has nothing to do with this. It's he about the fourth champion. Yeah, but it's kind of like he also doesn't know that sure. at this time. He was like, yeah, there's only three will come out. And by the way, if you're underage, don't even bother. Yes, that part's oh, bad. Oh, shit, Harry Potter, what? Yeah, that part's bad. I mean, you know, <laughs> chapter 17, the four champions. Harry sat there, aware that every head in the great hall had turned to look at him. He was stunned. He felt numb. He was surely dreaming. Oh, man. He had not heard correctly. There was no applause. There's a buzz as if of angry bees. People stand to look at him. He's frozen in his seat. Again, a creature in the zoo. McGonagall rushes over to whisper to Dumbledore, who's, quote, frowning slightly. Harry turns to Ron and Hermione and sees the whole Gryffindor table looking at him. Mouths agape. I didn't put my name in, Harry said blankly. You know I didn't. Both of them stare just as blankly back. Dumbledore calls his name again. Up here, if you please. Hermione pushes him off the table and up to where he needs to go. And when he gets up, he trips over his own robes. Little moments like this are so humanizing. Again, achieving that remarkable balance between making Harry relatable and clarifying for us how totally under the microscope he feels. He can feel every eye upon him during a walk that feels an hour long. And who hasn't felt that feeling? Yeah. When you have to make a public statement or you have to talk in front of class, you have to do something. And man, you are suddenly aware of your body in a way that is (laughs) uncomfortable. Even Ron and Hermione couldn't give Harry reassurance in that moment, couldn't make him feel less alone. But now he's reached Dumbledore. Surely, surely now Dumbledore will make him feel like it's okay. No. Well, through the door, Harry, said Dumbledore. He wasn't smiling, which is... Yeah, a key description. Is like a door slamming shut. The absence of that signature twinkle in the eye, the trademark twitch of the lips must make Harry feel like there's truly no hope. Even Hagrid fails to smile at Harry or reassure him. He looks completely astonished. Harry is alone. Harry enters the side chamber where the portraits on the walls are already gossiping. And Harry looks ahead, quote, Victor Crumb, Cedric Diggory, and Fleur Delacour were grouped around the fire. I love this. So good. They looked strangely impressive, silhouetted against the flames. That is the kind of moment, that kind of description, that makes J.K. Rowling so good. Harry, almost always, since he entered the magical world, is the giant in the room. Mm -hmm. Even when he doesn't want to be. Often especially when he doesn't want to be. But here he feels small. He's an accidental David, and he's staring up at three Goliaths. And Floor speaks to him. What is it? Do they want us back in the hall? She thinks he's there. Right. They don't understand. To deliver a message. Yeah. Quote, Harry didn't know how to explain what had just happened. He just stood there, looking at the three champions. This is another fabulous line here. Yeah. It struck him how very tall all of them were. Harry feeling now that imposter syndrome of like, wait, I'm one of the, I don't even look like them. Ludo Bagman enters. (laughs) And real mood shifter, this guy. Real mood shifter. You know, everybody's like either astonished or shocked and a little afraid. And Bagman's like, money! We did it, baby! 
Hey. <laughs> may I introduce, incredible though it may seem, the fourth Triwizard Champion. Crumb, his face darkens. Cedric looks, quote, politely bewildered. Fleur thinks it's a joke and then is frowning. There's clearly a mistake. He cannot compete. He's too young. He's like a little boy. I could stomp him beneath my heel. He's nothing. <laughs> He's too young. <laughs> Who is this infant placenta man? Oh my God. He still has umbilical cord trailing from his belly. <laughs> Dumbledore, who is this baby? <laughs> Bagman reminds them that the age restriction is a new invention. Looking at Dumbledore, right? That's new, right? What's more, hey guys, the name came out and that name came out and that's it. Bagman says, his name came out of the goblet. I mean, I don't think there could be any ducking out at this stage. <laughs> it's down to the rules. You're obliged. <laughs> Fucking little Bagman. <laughs> it's like, Incredible. Unbelievable, this guy. At that moment, Dumbledore, Crouch, Karkaroff, Madame Maxine, Megalion, and Snape come in the room. And it's the vibe and energy coming off of them is Ooh. not good. Ooh. Not good. When Fleur sees her headmistress, she calls out, They're saying that this little boy is to complete also. <laughs> Look at him. I have to change his diaper now and he will compete. <laughs> Do you want the applesauce, little champion boy? You want your little juice cup? This starts to bring Harry back to himself. Somewhere from the book, somewhere under Harry's numb disbelief, he felt a ripple of anger. Little boy? Yes, your little boy! You little baby! Maxime and Karkaroff, enemies in this competition, are united in this moment. And why wouldn't they be? Because I got to say, this feels like home cooking if you're them. Oh, yeah. You go to Hogwarts and then all of a sudden Hogwarts gets two champions and one of them's a baby? What the fuck is this shit? (laughs) What is the meaning of this, Maxime wants to know. I don't recall anything about the host getting two champions, Igor notes. And Maxime from the book, it is most unjust. Yeah. Again, this is a little bit of egg on Dumbledore's face. It looks bad for him. I'm oh, sure, sure he's he's got larger concerns at this moment, but also like his peers are like, "What are you doing to us?" The Ministry too. Shocking. Well, Ludo <laughs> Bagman went wrong. Yeah, the listen, Ludo Bagman is like, "Hey guys, <laughs> broken eggs. Let's make an omelet. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> let's make an omelet that I can feed to the goblins so they stop hunting me for my crippling debt." Yeah. Dumbledore turns and looks at Harry, and Harry looks back at him. Quote, and I will be quoting not only the quote, but the description of the quote. Quote, did you put your name into the Goblet of Fire, Harry? He asked calmly, end quote. (laughs) Very important description there that uh, seemed to have gotten lost in the process of adapting this into a film. For more on that, tune in for seven hours when we talk (laughs) about this movie. Harry replies with the truth. No. Dumbledore next asks if Harry had an older student put his name in for him. Again, no. And then McGonagall, a true legend, steps up. One of the only people who's channeling her confusion and anger in that moment in logical fashion. After people are attacking the age line, McGonagall says, Dumbledore, you know perfectly well you did not make a mistake 
said Professor McGonagall angrily. Really, what nonsense. There's that great moment before that where Dumbledore's like, well, it is possible. And yeah. he's like, no, I, this isn't on me. I know I got the magic, right? It's something else. McGonagall continues. Harry could not have crossed the line himself, and as Professor Dumbledore believes that he did not persuade an older student to do it for him, I'm sure that it should be good enough for everybody else. Yeah. McGonagall, this moment reminds us, is truly one of the most ride-or-die yes. characters in the story. She is always rational. Yes. She is always logical. Yes. She always takes stock of the facts. Yes. But— She's also always got your back yes. if you're one of her people. She is never going to leave Dumbledore or anybody else she cares about and believes in out on an ice flow. Crouch puts it plainly. Fucking Crouch. Even though Crouch is disturbed as well by what he's seen and surely has other considerations. We have to follow the rules and the rules say the names that come out of the goblet must compete. And Bagman is like, woo! <laughs> <laughs> Karkaroff demands that each school get two champions, which, honestly— Reasonable. Is quite reasonable. Reasonable. <laughs> quite reasonable. But Bagman says, hey, man, goblet's out. <laughs> the goblet's out. The goblet's out. That's a magical thing. I don't even know how it works. It turns on when we're going to have the tournament, and then it turns off. And no one can turn it on until the next tournament happens. And Igor's like, yo, I'm, I'm about to be up out of here. Yes. This is bullshit. A new voice rises. Empty threat, Karkaroff, growled a voice from near the door. You can't leave your champion now. He's got to compete. They've all got to compete. Binding magical contract, like Dumbledore said. Convenient, huh? It's Bart I. Moody. Naturally. Yeah, and Karkaroff says he has no idea what Moody means. Don't you? Said Moody quietly. <laughs> it's very simple, Karkaroff. Someone put Potter's name in the goblet knowing he'd have to compete if it came out. What an incredible moment to think about. Barty is, in essence, sharing his plan with the room. Incredible. He's telling everybody what is happening. Yeah. This is what he did, and this is why, but he's weaponizing this knowledge, turning what he knows to be true into accusations and paranoia that will make everyone else in the room feel isolated and suspicion of the others or of what the others might think of them. He's essentially putting the truth out there in order to degrade the weight of the truth. What is true? What really happened here? Who could have done this? No one knows. Right. Masterful manipulation. Yes. It really is. Bardi says that Harry, not the other heads of school, is the one who has the right to complain. But it's funny, right. I don't hear him saying anything. Flora is really offended by this. She's like, this is a chance Manny would die for. What does he have to complain about? Yeah. And Moody, always one to lighten the mood, whether it's actual Moody or imposter Moody, says, maybe someone's hoping Potter is going to die for it. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and Kargroff, to his credit, he kind of pulls a Malfoy here, which is to say he's being a despicable dick, but also this is a great line. <laughs> it really is, and we have to give him credit. We all know Professor Moody considers the morning wasted if he hasn't discovered six plots to murder him before lunchtime, right. <laughs> said Kargroff loudly. Apparently, he's now teaching his students to fear assassination, too. We've got a Dumbledunk coming here. An odd quality in a defense against the dark arts teacher, Dumbledore. But no doubt you had your reasons. You know what another odd quality is? Being <laughs> Voldemort. <laughs> That's an odd. I find that an odd quality in a defense against oh the dark arts God. teacher. Incredible. Bardi, however, gains continued power and control over the room from being isolated in his possession of the truth. This is his plan. He knows what actually happened, and he can use that to manipulate the situation and work the room. Imagining things, am I, growled Moody. Seeing things, eh, it was a skilled witcher wizard who put the boy's name in that goblet. Doing so, he notes, 
required hoodwinking a very powerful magical object. He gets so specific here that it is almost maddening in hindsight. You just want to shake the other characters in the room, particularly Dumbledore, a noted legilimens, (laughs) who can read minds and figure things out. But really just anyone who has common sense and the ability to perceive a situation and say, this guy is dropping the kind of detail that only someone who's visited the crime scene could possibly know. Mm -hmm. Quote, it would have needed an exceptionally strong confundus charm to bamboozle the goblet, that goblet, into forgetting that only three schools compete in the tournament. I'm guessing they submitted Potter's name under a fourth school to make sure he was the only one in his category. This is exactly it. This is some real whoever right. smelt at Delta shit. It's like <laughs> Harry Potter, University of North Carolina. <laughs> Dumbledore speaks up. No one knows how this happened, but it has, and there's nothing we could do. Again, we've come to think at this point mostly because of Harry, because of the force of reputation, not because of anything we've actually seen, that Dumbledore can fix or solve anything. That's the kind of vibe he puts out. He's the only one that Voldemort ever feared, notably. He beat Grindelwald. He's considered by many the greatest sorcerer in the world, but he can't figure out a way around a name on a piece of paper. It's a helpless, lonely feeling for him, for Harry and for us. Everyone is resigned to this new reality. Crouch steps forward to explain what happens next. The first task is designed to test your daring, he told Harry, Cedric, Fleur, and Victor. So we're not going to be telling you what it is. Courage in the face of the unknown is an important quality in a wizard. Very important. The task will take place on November 24th, and Crouch stresses that they're not allowed to ask for or accept help of any kind from their teachers. They'll have only their wands. Of course, that's not how it'll go at Hogwarts a.k.a. Gossip University. But that's the intent. Find out how everyone measures up when it's just you, your wand, and your wit. There will be a lot of cheating in this tournament to come. Harry thinks to himself, was anyone except Ron and Hermione going to believe him? Got bad news for you, buddy. How can anyone think, Harry wonders to himself, when this means facing people with much more experience, risking his life and his pride in front of hundreds, that this is something he would want? Quote, but someone else had considered it, he thinks. And he now in this moment is reflecting really for the first time on what this actually means. Did someone really want him dead? Well, you know, it doesn't take him long to find the answer there. Yes. <laughs> yes. Voldemort's wanted Harry dead since he was a baby. Harry thinks about the dream that he had at the beginning of the book about Voldemort and Wormtail plotting his murder. In order, we will learn about the prophecy and the extent to which Harry is truly a marked man. But even before that, really since this story started, We've understood how isolated Harry is in this respect. Of all those who Voldemort has killed, only Harry survived. He beat Voldemort's vapor form in his servant quarrel. He bested my good friend Tom in the chamber. And Harry isn't just another mark for Voldemort. He's an obsession. He's an all-consuming focus. He's the kind of driving goal that blots out the sun. He finds Ron in the dorm. Oh, hi. Oh, hello, said Ron, who's described as grinning in a very odd and strained way. Harry's struggling to remove (laughs) the banner. He's got a Gryffindor banner that Lee had draped over him and tied quite tightly around his neck. There's a great descriptor here of he comes in and suddenly becomes aware of that he's still got this thing. So he's trying to get it off, but the knot is so tight that he's struggling with it. Ron says, so congratulations. And Harry observes that the smile Looks more like a grimace. Ron asks if he used the cloak to get over the line. What a pointed thing to say. 
because it's speaking of a personal knowledge and the friendship and of the things they shared. Right. We snuck around so many times together with the cloak. Is that what you used this time to do? And Harry notes that that doesn't make sense. Oh, right, said Ron. I thought you might have told me if it was the cloak because it would have covered both of us, wouldn't it? But you found it another way, did you? Now, Ron is being an idiot. He's up in his feelings right now. He should know that Harry wouldn't have done this, know that Harry needs support. But also, it's easy to understand why he feels this way. Ron has always felt second best, youngest of the brothers, remember? Remember what he saw in the Mirror of Erised, himself draped in glory, being the best of all, the best Weasley of them all. Being Harry's friend has always been such a double-edged sword in this respect. On the one hand, it's a pathway to adventure and thrills and for some shine. On the other, he's the backup guy, always. He will always be the backup guy. When Ron says, it would have covered both of us, it's not stupidity, it's feeling for the first time since Harry's been in his life that his best friend might have chosen to leave him behind. And it's also, you know, it's also kind of like, oh, of course, I see. You kind of get the sense that somewhere deep in Ron's fears, he's been waiting waiting for this moment to happen. That's nothing to how Harry feels, though. Yes. Ron keeps pushing. It's okay. You can tell me. You didn't even get into trouble. You're going to have a chance to win all this money. You don't even have to take end of your tests. Yeah. And Harry starts to feel really angry. Ron raises what Harry said that very morning about how he would have entered his name the prior night, unseen yeah. alone. Quote, I'm not stupid, you know, Ron says. And Harry fires back. Quote, you're doing a really good impression of it. Yeah, said Ron, and there was no trace of a grin, forced or otherwise, on his face now. You want to get to bed, Harry. I expect you'll need to be up early tomorrow for a photo call or something. It's wild. <laughs> From the moment that Harry found out he was a wizard and his entire life and understanding of the world transformed, Ron has been his constant, his truest friend, his fervent supporter. Ron has never wavered in his friendship. Oh. He followed Harry into a hunt for the Sorcerer's Stone. He followed him into the Forbidden Forest. He followed him into the Chamber of Secrets. And in Harry's darkest moments of fear, of anger, of longing, Ron has always been there. He invited Harry into his home, helped him learn about this new world, gave Harry the closest thing he's ever known, not only to friendship, but to family. Ron might not be as brilliant as Hermione or as inspiring as Dumbledore or as reassuring as Hagrid, the other most important people in Harry's life, but he's always been, you know, just been. He's there. He's a steadying force amid what for Harry can often feel like a relentless gale. And now, in this moment when Harry needs that presence and support most, when he really feels like he's slipping into a void, it's gone. And now a brief break for a word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by Sonos. Love Sonos. Love the Sonos Beam. It's dead easy to set up. You just put it in front of your TV, under your TV, if you have your TV on your wall. Connects very easily using optical or HDMI cord and boom, sounds freaking great. You can play it all. Beam will enhance all your daily routines with incredible sound for shows, music, video games, podcasts. Hey. Hey. Like this. This is a podcast. It really is. Audiobooks or movie night. Enjoy crystal clear dialogue. The speech enhancement feature uses advanced technology to ensure you never miss a word when watching shows and movies. Setting Beam up is easy. Beam connects to your TV with just one cord and syncs with your existing remote. With Amazon Alexa plus privacy mode, turn your TV sound up or down using your voice or turn the microphone off altogether with the touch of a button. Go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Sonos Beam to start your smart home sound system. 
That's Sonos, S-O-N-O-S dot com. And now back to Binge Mode. Chapter 18, The Weighing of the Wands. Ron is literally gone when Harry wakes up the next morning. Welcome for Harry. He's part of a best friend trio. You yes. got that backup best friend. <laughs> and our girl, Hermione, is downstairs with Toast and the offer of a walk. And she believes him. Of course she does. Like, Hermione's probably been working on this all night. What happened? What? Life, blessed life, the sustenance of unwavering trust and support. She brings something other than toast and companionship, too. Some wisdom. Yes. When Harry pushes her about Ron, she says, oh, Harry, isn't it obvious? He's jealous. Uh-huh. She explains what's so clear to us. Harry is in the spotlight, always. Ron's always shunted to the side. And this one was one time too many. I mean, think about the way Ron was reacting to Crumb and Fleur. To think that his friend is elevated to that level, it's very strange. It's awkward to be like, wow, are people thinking about Harry the way I think about Crumb? That is disconcerting from the book. Tell him from me I'll swap anytime he wants. Tell him from me he's welcome to it. Harry's fraught relationship with his own fame and reluctance to embrace his own celebrity is sincere. But it's not something that someone else, even someone who knows him, can understand. They can't really grasp what it's like. Right. Hermione tells Harry, let's focus on something practical here. We need to write to Sirius. She notes that it seems that he almost expected that something like this was going to happen. He would want to know, as usual, Hermione is right. What's more, she says, again, showing that she's 12 steps ahead of everyone else at all times. Sirius is going to find out regardless. This is news, buddy. The blog boys are coming for you. I better get out in front of it. And Harry writes a very basic letter, laying out the facts. He's in the tournament, but not by choice. Quote, he had an urge to say something about the large weight of anxiety that seemed to have settled inside his chest since last night. But he couldn't think how to translate this into words. So he simply dipped his quill back into the ink bottle and wrote. Harry doesn't want to carry this weight alone. Think of what he craved when he woke from the dream with a pain in his scar at the beginning of the book. Something like a parent. He wants to be able to confide in someone. He wants to be able to seek and find comfort and care. But here, and so often, something holds him back. Harry's isolation is very often forced upon him, but certain times, it's of his own making. The next day, he realizes that the rest of the school also thinks that he put his name in. But unlike Gryffindor, is pissed about it, of course. From the book again, it was plain that the Hufflepuffs felt that Harry had stolen their champion's glory. A feeling exacerbated, perhaps, by the fact that Hufflepuff House very rarely got any glory and that Cedric was one of the few who had ever given them any. I mean, you understand how Hufflepuff feels. Listen, put yourself in their shoes. You'd be fucking pissed. Even Professor Sprout seemed distant, but Hagrid, sweet Hagrid, believes Harry, pulling him aside in class to ask if he has any idea who put it in his name. You believe I didn't do it then, said Harry, concealing with difficulty the rush of gratitude he felt. Hagrid looks at Harry with worry in his eyes. Everything seems to happen to you, doesn't it? My guy's life essentially began with Voldemort trying to kill him. So, yeah, everything happens to him. That's why Ron's hurt and why Harry's never really been able to be a regular kid. He's always been defined, isolated by these things that have happened to him. And crucially, the choices that he makes in response to them. Yes. Quote. The next few days were some of Harry's worst at Hogwarts. The closest he has ever felt to this is back in his second year when many people thought he was the heir of Slytherin. What's the difference? Quote, but Ron had been on his side then. He thought he could have coped with the rest of the school's behavior if he could have just had Ron back as a friend. That taps into something so true, so universal about the power of friendship. 
to make us feel less alone, even in times when it seems like everything else is crumbling around us. We've all felt that way. Oh, I could get through this if I just had this yes. person's support. Harry understands Hufflepuff's attitude and never expected any support from Slytherin, of course, but Ravenclaw's nearly universal pro-Cedric lean is another real blow for him. They seem to think that he was desperate for even more fame, and it doesn't help, Harry thinks, that they're comparing him to Cedric, who so looks the part. He's, quote, exceptionally handsome. He's got gray eyes. It's described like a movie star. Getting as much admiration these days is crumb. People want Cedric's autograph now. And all of this, this anxiety, this judgment, this suspicion is impacting literally Harry's ability to just do his classwork, to think, as his poor concentration leads him to botch his summoning charm lesson and be the only person other than Neville to get extra work. Harry struggled in class before, but being isolated with Neville, who we love, but let's be real here, being isolated with Neville in this respect, that's a real blow. Yes. <laughs> Shouts the Neville. Always. When Harry gets to double potions, always the salve for his ailing spirits, he sees all the Slytherins wearing badges that say, support Cedric Diggory, the real Hogwarts champion. <laughs> Man. When Malfoy presses his badge, it changes to a flash. Potter stinks. Everyone laughs and presses their badges too. Colin Creevy, young, sweet Colin Creevy, RIP to my dude, enters and pulls Harry out of this miserable state. Right into another one, because Colin announces that Harry has to go upstairs for champion photos. Yeah. Literally the last thing in the world that Harry wanted Ron to hear in that moment. Harry enters the room and learns that it's the wand weighing ceremony. Bagman's there, and so is Rita Skeeter, Jason's personal hero. Listen, <laughs> we need a press. Role of the press is extremely important, especially in a basically one-party government like the <laughs> wizarding culture. Rita asks for time with Harry before the ceremony, quote, to add a bit of color. Even among the champions, even among the cream of the crop, Harry's on an island. He's a particularly juicy piece of meat for this vulture that Rita is to rip her claws into, and her quill as well. She takes him to a literal broom cupboard, which is not normal. And when she smiles, Harry counts three gold teeth. <laughs> Amazing stuff. She asks if she can use a quick quotes quill, which we honestly I need. We could of, use one of those for the binge mode listen, outlines. Give me a quick quotes. Isaac, quill can you look into that now. for us, please? Now <laughs> she sucks the quill quote with apparent relish. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Call me, Rita. <laughs> Physicians it on the parchment and says her name and position as a test. The quill writes. Attractive blonde Rita Skeeter, 43, whose savage quill has punctured many inflated reputations. Ah, okay. We see how this game will go. Yeah. Harry has yet to speak, but the quill is already writing. An ugly scar, souvenir of a tragic past, disfigures the otherwise charming face of Harry Potter. We eyes. need an editor. Where's the editor? <laughs> Where's the editor of The Prophet to kind of check this purple prose? If that's the first draft, that's fine. But we got to— We thought we needed Zach Cram, but like The Prophet really needs Zach Cram to fact check this shit. Yeah, come on. Disfigured? Hardly. Rita tells him, ignore the quill. <laughs> He denies entering the tournament. She's like, come on, my dude. It's just you and me and all my readers. Yeah, hey, Everyone on. loves a rebel, Harry. This is off the record. No, it's not. She brings up past deaths in the tournament. She brings up his parents. She asks how they'd feel. And he's thinking to himself, how would I know? Mm -hmm. The quill writes, tears fill those startlingly green eyes as our conversation turns to the parents he can barely remember. Dumbledore, thankfully, bursts in. For once aware that something... <laughs> 
untoward is happening in his castle. And though Rita pretends to be delighted, she stashes away her parchment before he can see it. She is a vampire, and she is sucking the blood of Harry's past and present isolation. Mr. Ollivander has arrived, and he's there to check the wands in the tournament. He checks floors first. Dear me, the core is Vila hair. Mm. This is wild. One of my grand muscles, says Fleur. Harry makes a mental note to tell Ron, then remembers that they're fighting. Sucks. He can't even gossip with anyone right now. Next, Cedric, who got his wand from Ollivander years ago. Yes, I remember it well. Containing a single hair from the tail of a particularly fine male unicorn. Particularly fine male unicorn, just like the champion himself. Oli asks if Cedric treats it regularly, and he replies, Polished it last night. Oh, polishing your wand. Tell me more, my dear. <laughs> this jolts Harry who polishes his broom and a wand. Sure, but not this one. He sees finger marks all over his own. So he looks down and he tries to rub it on his robes, but sparks shoot out. Yet another moment in which Harry feels inadequate. Crumb's turn. Ah, rather thicker than one usually sees. Quite rigid. <laughs> and now let me see a wand. <laughs> And then it's Harry's turn. And he thinks back to that moment when he got his wand and learned that it was a twin to Voldemort's wand from the book. Harry had never shared this piece of information with anybody. And it's one more isolating factor, one more secret that he carries alone. And it's, I think, notable that these secrets that Harry keeps, he keeps because he's trying to maintain this illusion that he is like everyone else. He doesn't want people to know Well, Voldemort tried to kill me. Also, like, I have his twin wand. Also, you know, like, he's trying to blend in, and that's what drives him to keep these secrets. And also, ironically, that's what keeps him more isolated because he's keeping these secrets. He can't share them with anyone. I love, ultimately, also in terms of the long game impact of wand lore, how he has that moment where he thinks, in essence, he doesn't want the fact that it's Voldemort's wand's twin to be held against his wand. Which he loves. Like, he thinks of the wand like a being. It's great stuff. Harry returns to the dorm to find Sirius's reply. Sirius wants to talk face-to-face. Shit's getting real. And asks Harry to be alone in front of the common room fire on November 22nd at 1 a.m. Chapter 19, The Hungarian Horntail. From the book. The prospect of talking face-to-face with Sirius was all that sustained Harry over the next fortnight. The only bright spot on a horizon that had never looked darker. Think about that. Never looked darker. All the things Harry has faced in his Hogwarts career never look darker. He's not consumed by shock anymore, but that's been replaced by fear. There's no getting out of this. He has to compete. It's a magical contract. And the first task is fast approaching. The prospect feels like a horrific monster barring his path. As he'll very soon find out, that is actually what it is. (laughs) (laughs) His nerves are unmatched by anything he's experienced before. It's not that he thinks Sirius can help him prepare. He doesn't, after all, know what he's facing yet, but he just wants to see a friendly face, like somebody who will be his friend in this moment. He didn't really know what he had until he didn't have that. That's right. The rift with Ron, the isolation Harry feels among his peers at school, has him craving support and familiarity. It seemed impossible because things have been pretty damn bad, but they got worse for Harry. Because, read a fake news, Skeeter, <laughs> and her coverage is almost all Harry-centric, putting him even more firmly in the spotlight. She misspells Crumb and Floor's names, yes. only mentions them in the last line of her article, and doesn't mention Cedric 
at all. Weird choice. He's extremely handsome. This is the last <laughs> thing Harry, who is trying to fight off the misperception that he wormed his way into the tournament to feed his unquenchable thirst for fame. Yes. This is the last thing he needs. Harry gets a, quote, sick, burning feeling of shame in his stomach whenever he thinks about this article. It's full of fabrications, things he never said, but things that deeply exacerbate his current misery. Lines about him crying over his parents, who give him strength, who he knows will keep him safe. This is a disgrace on Rita's part. She has taken the most sacred thing in Harry's life, his relationship to his parents and their deaths, and turned it into blog fodder. That's not all. She interviewed other people about Harry and spun their comments into a yarn about Harry and Hermione also a top student, (laughs) dating. And to cap all this, Harry thought he and Ron might have made up while they were spending two hours pickling rat brains together during Snape's detention. Mm. But that was the day the article came out, not what Juan Juan wanted to read. And unfortunately, proof in Ron's mind that Harry really is loving this. We then get more sincere life wisdom from JK. Quote, it is a strange thing. But when you're dreading something and would give almost anything to slow down time, it has a disobliging habit of speeding up. As the days leading up to the first task are melting away for Harry, Hermione convinces him to go to Hogsmeade for a palate cleanser. But he insists on wearing his invisibility cloak. And this is one of the moments for Harry in this stretch where isolation is not a burden for him. It's a salve. Yes. He is so tired of people staring at him pressing their Potter Stinks badges in his face. He just wants to be able to disappear, to not be the object of attention and scorn. Quote, Harry felt wonderfully free under the cloak. No one can sneer at him. No one can, quote, read his article to him because they can't even see that he's there. It's a brief reprieve from the irrepressible hell that has been his recent life. And Hermione, a true friend, abides, even though she observes, quote, I look like such an idiot sitting here on my own. Perceived isolation for Hermione is a price that she's willing to pay to give Harry the comfort and anonymity that he's craving. And this self-imposed isolation via invisibility can't bring Harry true peace. He sits there, sipping his butterbeer, looking around the three broomsticks, observing how cheerful and relaxed everyone else looks. Quote, What wouldn't he have given to be one of these people sitting around laughing and talking with nothing to worry about but homework? He just wants to be able to hang out in a pub and share candy and drinks with his friends without worrying, for once, about some threat or impending dread. He just wants to be normal. Hagrid tells Harry to meet him at midnight under the cloak. Hagrid, who's on the prowl. He's trying to look his best, trying to impress Metamexine. And my guy has freaking shards of comb in his hair. He leads Harry inside the Babaton, the carriage, fetches Metamexine. Bonjour. This is <laughs> he amazing. says in greeting, which is Bonjour. Fucking incredible. <laughs> Bonjour. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. He tells Metamexine, not to tell anyone about what he's about to show her. Harry's getting impatient, worried about missing his appointment with Sirius, but then Harry sees it. Boom. Dragons, guys. First task. We're already cheating. For more on dragons, check out our Sorcerer's Stone, episode three, restricted section. Harry sees four breeds and hears a voice warn Hagrid to step back because they can shoot fire 20 feet. And he's seen the horde and tail reach 40. They can't tame the piece, so in unison, they stun them. Harry realizes 
The wizard who warned Hagrid is Charlie Weasley, who gently chastises Hagrid for bringing Maxine. She's bound to tell her students, isn't she? Great point. Hagrid asks if the champions will have to fight the dragons, and Charlie says, no, just get past them, I think. He notes that the organizers wanted nesting mothers. We'll realize soon this is to protect the egg. Charlie also says that he doesn't envy whoever gets the horntail. Vicious thing, he says, with a back end as dangerous as its front spiked tail to pair with fiery breath. We can already see where this is going. As Charlie shifts to how Mrs. Weasley is agonizing over Harry's safety. He still cries about his parents. Oh, bless him, I never knew. Harry's had enough. He walks away and reflects on what he's just learned. Here's the thing, though. Surely everyone knows. Right. Because secrets at Hogwarts... (laughs) spread like wildfire. (laughs) This isn't actually an isolating burden, but it still feels like one. Everybody knows about it. So in that sense, it's not. But on the other hand, he has to face it. So what do you do with this information? You're not supposed to have it. That's clear. It's in the rules. But do you share it with others? Who can you talk to? Who do you go to? Well, it's time to go talk to Sirius for one. Quote, he couldn't remember ever wanting to talk to someone more than he did right now. Harry sees Karkaroff sneaking off to spy on the dragons. There you go. More confirmation. Every champion but Cedric will know what the task is. Harry sneaks back in to the castle and blessedly finds the common room empty. Hermione didn't have to set off a dung bum. Other than the Potter really stinks badges that the creepy brothers have unsuccessfully adjusted. Sirius's head is in the fire, just like Amos Diggory's had been back at the burrow. And Harry smiles for the first time in days. Our guy serious? He looks good. He looks younger. His hair is short. His face is full. But his eyes, Harry observes, still carry the ghost of Azkaban. That's never going to leave him. And Harry, for once, doesn't front and say he's fine. He lets it all spill out. I'm a goner, he finished desperately. Sirius says, we'll get to the dragons in a minute. I got something I want to talk to you about. Karkaroff, said Sirius. Harry, he was a Death Eater. You know what Death Eaters are, don't you? And he goes on to tell Harry that Karkaroff was an Azkaban with him and that he thinks that's why Dumbledore wanted an Auror at Hogwarts this year. Moody, Sirius reveals, caught Karkaroff in the first place. He's out of Azkaban because he did a deal with the Ministry. He named names. And now he's very unpopular. What's more, he's been teaching his students dark arts. All of this tracks. (laughs) (laughs) So Sirius adds, Watch out for the Durmstrang champion as well. Uh-oh. Sirius also says that he's been reading between the lines of Rita's articles and figures mm-hmm. out that Moody was attacked the night before starting at Hogwarts. Someone, Sirius has deduced, wanted to stop him from getting there. Harry's trying to process this all. Why? Why would Karkaroff want to kill him? And Sirius says the Death Eaters have been more active lately. Mm-hmm. He also brings up Bertha and how Albania, where she vanished, is where Voldemort was last rumored to be. Observation, Sirius should be in charge of everything. Yes. He says that Bertha was at Hogwarts with him and that she was the type who'd be easy to lure into a trap. Harry says, so so Voldemort could have found out about the tournament? Sirius is really close to having a lot of the information correct here. But of course, he, just like everyone else, could have no way of knowing that Barty Crouch Jr. is really the threat here and that he's really... Junior! (laughs) (laughs) Pretending to be moody (laughs) and that Karkaroff isn't actually the one behind this. But Sirius says, I can't help thinking the tournament would be a very good way to attack you and make it look like an accident. Exactly. And this is just more information for Harry to carry, more evidence that he's a target, more proof that he needs to try to evade something that's coming for him and him alone. Man, it's so interesting to think 
all the suspicions that people have about why Harry's name came out of the goblet, what the attack could possibly be, and everybody's so off base. It is so much more serious and nefarious and evil than anyone, even these people who've seen some of the evilest shit, could imagine. Just as Sirius is about to tell Harry how to stop a dragon, there's a sound. Harry ushers Sirius away, and it's Ron. And Ron's like, who are you talking to? And the stress of the recent days finally gets to Harry. He just missed out on advice that he desperately needs about what to do about this dragon, and he can't take it anymore. Just thought you'd come nosing around, did you? Harry shouted. He knew that Ron had no idea what he walked in on, knew he hadn't done it on purpose, of course, but he doesn't care. In this moment, he hated everything about Ron, right down to the several inches of bare ankle showing beneath his pajama trousers. I love that little oh, yeah. image because very that's what, true. It's very life. true. It's like when you know somebody so well that there's that one little thing that just gets under your skin. And right in that moment, it's like you also that's you pick only, out that one thing that just annoys you. You only harp on the small things like so that well if you actually really love someone. Yeah, that's so that's well not the observed. Kind of shit you notice about someone who yes. who isn't worth your time. Yes. That's the kind of tiny petty shit you harp on with people you really care about. Ron fires back. I'll let you get on with practicing for your next interview in peace. Harry throws a badge at Ron, hitting him in the head. There you go, (laughs) Harry said. Something for you to wear on Tuesday. You might even have a scar now if you're lucky. That's what you want, isn't it? Maybe in a moment when Ron clearly woke up worrying about Harry's absence and Harry so desperately needed help, they could have come together, but they're both too angry. Too proud to be the first one to say, I'm sorry. And they're both just alone, caught up in their feelings. Harry wants Ron to stop him, even to punch him. But he just stands there and Harry never hears him come up to bed. That scene is so painful. It really is. Chapter 20, the first task. You know this book is long because the first task is in chapter 20. (laughs) (laughs) Love Goblet of Fire! My favorite book of all time. It's great. Harry fills in Hermione on the dragons and his conversation with Sirius. She is concerned about Karkaroff, sure, but astutely observes that keeping Harry alive through the first task is the more pressing issue here. They head to the library to research dragons, trying to figure out what simple spell Sirius possibly could have been referencing before the Ron interruption. They have such little luck that when Harry wakes the next morning, he, quote, seriously considered for the first time ever just running away from Hogwarts. He can't bring himself to do it, of course. Other than the time he presumes with his parents when he must have been happy. Quote, it was the only place he had ever been happy. Put yourself in Harry's shoes for this moment in time. Consider that debilitating, soul-shredding agony. Hogwarts is where he belongs. Yes. It's where he, very rarely, but sometimes feels safe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because there's no safer place, as we all know. It's where he feels seen. It's where he feels like he is intended to be. And right now, it's also the source of his misery. What is left when the thing that once brought you joy and purpose is now the source of your despair? Only loneliness. Because Harry knows so well what it's like to feel shut out and because he's a good person, he decides to tell Cedric about the dragons. This kind of sportsmanship and respect among competitors is so crucial to their relationship, slim though it is. And so heartbreaking in what happens at the end. Just shreds you on the inside. This is his competition. He doesn't need to do it. 
But Harry knows that Maxime and Karkaroff will have told Florin Crumb, of course, and after all this time spent trying to recover from the shock of an unpleasant discovery, he knows innately that telling said is the decent thing to do. He sees the panic in Cedric's eyes. Are you sure? Cedric said in a hushed voice. He asks why Harry is telling him. It's just fair, isn't it? Harry says. Bardai approaches and summons Harry away. Moody compliments what Harry just did. In the moment, it seems like genuine praise. It really does. Like, yeah. it's, again, worth noting how that reveal of Bardai's true identity waylays you in the end. Eventually, we'll realize what a key moment this is. Moody realizing he can leverage their decency against them, counting on Cedric to pass along info about the second task out of reciprocity because of Harry's kindness. Harry looks around Moody's office, taking in the objects. He sees Moody's dark detectors. Moody tells Harry not to sweat what he just called cheating. Sure. It's tournament tradition. Yeah. And what's more, Moody notes... Maxime and Karkaroff will surely be doing anything they can to help their champions. He says they'll want to beat Dumbledore, too, and prove he's only human. And after he says this, here's the description. Quote, Moody gave another harsh laugh. Well, of course, he's proving right now as he executes his plan that Dumbledore is only human. Mm -hmm. He says he won't tell Harry how to get past the dragon, but he will offer some advice. Play to your strengths. What transpires is truly odd to consider in light of the ultimate Barty reveal. I haven't got any, said Harry, before he could stop himself. Excuse me, growled Moody. You've got strengths if I say you've got them. Think now, what are you best at? Barty needs Harry to feel confident so that he can perform well enough to continue on in the tournament and reach the cup first. But he's also genuinely boosting Harry's self-esteem. He's giving him confidence. He's helping him gain knowledge. He's helping him refine his skills. Harry says good at Quidditch. And Moody says, damn right. Harry, quote, but I'm not a lot of broom. I've only got my wand. Moody's ready for this. My second piece of general advice, said Moody loudly interrupting him, is to use a nice simple spell that will enable you to get what you need. It clicks. Harry, who's been struggling with summoning charms, will need to summon his broom. Harry and Hermione practice and practice. And finally at 2 a.m., he gets it. Agio Dictionary! Harry's worried about the distance of the broom in the castle and him on the grounds, but she tells him it won't matter as long as he's concentrating. This spell, in a way, is about isolating one's focus. It's just about you and your intent and the object you need. How can you get this away from someone or something else and bring it to yourself? On the morning of the task from the book, Harry felt oddly separate from everyone around him. Again, isolation. Bagman prepares each of the champion In the vaguest of terms, they'll select a model of the thing they're about to face. Their task is to collect the egg. Harry hears hundreds of people coming down to the stadium. From the book, Harry felt as separate from the crowd as though they were a different species. Harry pulls the Hungarian horntail, the most vicious dragon of them all, from the bag. He's set to go last. He can tell from the way Fleur and Crumb react that he was right. They were warned. Cedric goes first. Harry, Fleur, and Crumb are in the tent waiting, unable to watch, isolated from their fellow competitor in the crowd and the full truth of what they're facing. Knowing is not in any way the same as seeing. Right. From the book, it was worse than Harry could ever imagine sitting there and listening. While this moment has set the champions apart from everyone else more than anything they've gone through before, it's also brought the four of them closer together because they're united by this trial they're about to face, this horror. As Harry watches Fleur exit, trembling to face her dragon, he, quote, felt more warmly toward her than he had done so far. Also, she fine. 
<laughs> when Crumb goes, Harry is alone from the book. He felt much more of his body than usual, very aware of the way his heart was pumping fast and his fingers tingling with fear. Love this. This will be a theme in the story in the moments of greatest terror or desperation or impossible clarity as with Harry's walk into the forest and hallows in one of the series' true signature moments. He takes stock of his physical form, the reality of himself being in his body, that hyper-awareness of being there, being there now in that moment in a way that is unusual, in a way that he's never done before, really. And now it's Harry's turn. Yeah. He walks out. He sees hundreds of faces, including the horntails, yellow eyes and all. He blocks out the sound. He focuses fully. Akio Firebolt, quote, he seemed to be looking at everything around him through some sort of shimmering, transparent barrier, like a heat haze. There's no one next to Harry right now. There's no one by his side. He's armed with nothing but a wand and his own nerve, his own daring. And that's enough. His broom speeds toward him. He can tell that the noise around him is louder than ever when this is happening, but he still can't focus on what they're saying. He mounts the broom. Quote, as he soared upward, as the wind rushed through his hair, as the crowd's faces became mere flesh-colored pinpricks below, and the horntail shrank to the size of a dog, he realized that he had left not only the ground behind, but also his fear. Wow. He was back where he belonged. She is so good. Oh, my God. Flight. Freedom. Peace. Isolation for Harry in the purest, most positive form. Harry's in the air. This is Harry and his gift, Harry and his passion, Harry and his strength. It's just another Quidditch match. The Horntails, the opposite team. Her flame, just another bludger to dodge. The golden egg, a snitch to catch. Mm -hmm. Great Scott, he can fly, yelled Bagman as the crowd shrieked and gasped. Are you watching this, Mr. Crumb? Think about that. That's the brilliance of what Harry is doing right the now. Creme de, the creme, I mean, bragging to Crumb, who is acknowledged by many to be the best flyer in the world. Are you watching this, Mr. Crumb? Unbelievable. The horned tail's tail grazes Harry's robes on one of his maneuvers, but the cut isn't deep. He ignores the sting. He goes on. He makes himself a fly for the dragon, moving this way and that, tempting her forward away from the eggs. And as soon as she rises, he dives. Golden egg in his hands, finally. The volume turned back up in his ears. <laughs> Cheers as loud as the ones at the World Cup. <laughs> Our youngest champion, Bagman shouts, is quickest to the egg. Then, well, this is going to shorten the odds on Mr. Potter. Really, this story's own yeah. all the Tostitos moment right here. From the book, Professor Moody looked very pleased too. His magical eye was dancing in its socket. Indeed it is. Madame Pomfrey beats the no safer place drum even louder than we do. Love her. She says, last year, Dementors, this year, Dragons. What are they going to bring into the school next? Glad you asked. Yeah, listen. <laughs> Harry's wound healed. He rises to leave the tent. But before he can, two people run toward him. Hermione. And who else? Ron. Juan Juan. <laughs> Harry, he said very seriously. Whoever put your name in the goblet, I I reckon they're trying to do you in. Harry's cold at first. Caught on, have you? Took you long enough. Hermione looks nervous and Ron opens his mouth about to speak from the book. Harry knew Ron was about to apologize and suddenly he found he didn't need to hear it. This is real friendship. This is the exact bookend to the wire, his ankles showing in yes. his two short it's pajamas. It's like, yeah, it's fine. 
This is real friendship. Yeah. Both I don't, sides of yeah. it. In a world of isolation and loneliness, of division defining our lives all too often, Harry ultimately doesn't need to hear that Ron was wrong. He just needs to feel that that relationship is repaired. Harry goes to get his marks. Madame Maxine, eight, which is okay. It's tough. Take, taken sure. off for the shoulder one. That's fair. Yeah. Crouch, who is, by the way, Mind controlled. Nine. <laughs> I like the nine because it doesn't draw yeah. too much attention but to it's, it. It's but it's good enough. But yeah, the guy controlling you wants that to be a high right. score. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dumbledore, nine. Okay. Sure. Bagman. This is egregious. <laughs> Bagman with money on this. Egregious. Ten. <laughs> re- chill out, my guy. Bagman again, who took Harry aside in front of everyone before this. And Karkaroff. Convicted Death Eater, four. <laughs> what the fuck? You thought nothing could be more egregious than Bagman. I, w- I just want to say, I don't think there's any way to go lower than eight and do it in a dignified way. Harry doesn't care. Ron's support is enough. And what's more, when it came down to it, the school came to his side. Yeah. All but those fucking Slytherins. And oh, Harry's Slytherins. tied for first place with Crumb. Bagman tells them the next task will be February 24th and that their eggs are their clues. That's my egg sound. Time to hit the bath. Jason? (laughs) Yes. Where do you reckon they're recording? We could offer him a space in our studio, Jason. I wouldn't wouldn't mind giving him my mic. I could keep it a remote connection. (laughs) We need our guests to be comfortable and to help us achieve that. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the magical world's other schools. Oh, I love school. Just because Harry doesn't contemplate magical education outside Britain doesn't mean readers haven't. Luckily, J.K. Rowling has considered it too and provided write-ups on Pottermore about some of the other schools around the globe. There aren't as many schools as we might expect as wizards in most countries choose homeschooling instead of centralized education. Not surprising when you see how various places are run in the wizarding world. And some magical communities are so small or remotely located that they rely on correspondence courses instead. Shouts to my guy, Filch. But there are still a sufficient number of schools to warrant exploring. There are 11 established and prestigious institutions across the world, rolling rights. And while they differ in some practices and areas of specialization, they all maintain a few collective traits. Listen, if you want to learn the dark arts, Fermstrang, that's your place. (laughs) Mainly, they operate in secret and tend to be located in landlocked, mountainous areas for two reasons. First, you want to make sure muggles don't wander across these places. And second, to make them easier to defend from practitioners of dark magic. Aha, this will be important later. <laughs> Some schools are so secretive that Rowling hasn't written about them. But here's a summary of the ones that we do know about. Number one, Hogwarts. To learn more about Hogwarts, check out Binge Mode. Great <laughs> podcast on a great website, theringa.com. Number two, Bobano, both Boba. <laughs> Both Bobaton and Dermshang have larger student bodies than Hogwarts, and in the case of the former, it's because Bobaton contains large numbers of students from Spain, Portugal, Luxembourg, Belgium, and the Netherlands, in addition to its French base. Situated somewhere in the Pyrenees, Bobaton is widely considered the most beautiful wizarding school with its magically crafted lawns and gardens etched into the mountainside. Sounds fantastic. And the castle grounds are rumored to have been funded in part by alchemical gold. From none other. Whoa! Than Nikki Flamel and his beautiful wife, 
Paranel. The homie Nick Flamel. The homie Nick Flamel just cooking up some gold. <laughs> Given that Newt Scamander will travel to France and meet Nicky Flamel in the upcoming Fantastic Beast movie. Can't wait for that. Can't wait. Might we learn more about this magical institution on uh, continental Europe? That's I think. exciting. I hope so. Number three, Durmstrang. Even amid a group of secretive schools, Durmstrang is the one that most closely guards its secrets, Stunning. as we see from Karkaroff and Goblin. And of course... Why not? When run by a fucking Death Eater. The best guess as to Durmstrang's location is the same as Hermione's on the Hogwarts Express, when she surmises that it must be in the far north due to the wintry climate. But nobody's quite certain where it actually is. Visitors must even undergo memory charms to erase their knowledge of how they got there. Do they not just have NDAs? Good Pretty lord. Pretty sketchy. I mean, I'm sorry. This is ridiculous, Durmstrang. <laughs> just fucking chill out, okay? Durmstrang is best known for its instruction on dueling and its association with dark magic. Although Rowling writes that Durmstrang's reputation for darkness, quote, was never entirely merited, entirely doing a lot of work there. <laughs> she immediately follows up by recounting how the school's founder died mysteriously to give way to a dueling-obsessed headmaster, how Igor Karkaroff, a convicted Death Eater, again, ran the place, and how its most famous pupil was none other than Gellert, for the greater good, Grindelwald, who tried to conquer continental Europe. Guys, <laughs> sounds merited. Yeah. Sorry to say this, but if you're a convicted Death Eater, you shouldn't be able to get a job teaching children. Here's the thing, though. I guess, like, if you're going to hold Grindelwald against Durmstrang, you got to hold Voldemort against Hogwarts. It's a fair point. <laughs> and listen, Hoggy Hoggy Hogwarts, can we get Tom Riddle's Fucking plaque? prefect. My guy's plaque <laughs> still down there for all to see. Number four. Besides Hogwarts, we know the most about Ilvermorny yes. because of Rowling's extensive writing about it. Quick rundown. Ilvermorny is located in Mount Greylock in modern-day Massachusetts. It accepts students from all over North America, and like Hogwarts, it sorts students into four houses. Horned Serpent, Wampus, Thunderbird, and Pukwudgie. It was founded in 1627, more than six centuries after Hogwarts, and initially existed as a shack containing two teachers and two students, before eventually building to a giant castle with a large student population. A wonderful new detail about Ilvermorny is its sorting ceremony. Rather than be selected by a hat, new students faced large wooden statues of the mascots of the four houses, which will react if they want that student in their house. One statue glows, one roars, one beats its wings, and one raises an arrow. After this process, the students proceed to a second ceremony where they are chosen once more, this time by a wand. Ah. Hmm. The Japanese school of Mahutakoro starts its education at the age of seven instead of 11. Those students younger than 11 go there during the day. And it still has the smallest population of any of the great wizarding schools. The school has a reputation for churning out Quidditch stars. Wow. Thanks in large part to its location. It stands at the topmost point of the volcanic island of Minami Iwo Jima. And both stormy seas and the need to watch out for planes from a nearby Muggle airbase help refine the flyer's technique. Wow. Oh <laughs> Man, a fascinating bit of magic enchants students' robes. They grow in size along with the students and change color as the students learn, beginning as a faint pink and, if the students achieve top grades, eventually turning gold. If the student has experimented with dark magic or broken the code of secrecies, though, the robes turn white to signify the malfeasance. Oh, I think we need this everywhere. Not into this. I go the other way. This really? is a combination of like a karate belt system and like the scarlet letter. Number six, Wagadu. Nobody knows exactly where this school is located and its location is called just 
the mountains of the moon and it appears to float in midair. But we do know, yes, but we do know that it's more than a thousand years old, the most prominent institution in Africa and comprised of students from across the continent. Because the wand is a European invention, many Wagadu students perform magic just by pointing their finger or making hand gestures. And they're especially talented in astronomy, alchemy, and self-transfiguration by which they can transform into animals at will. I'd love to know more about this. Children accepted into Wagadu learn about it from dream messengers who appear to sleeping children and leave a token, usually an inscribed stone in their hand to be found when they wake up. Wow. Changing my pick for what spinoff I want to see. I want to see this. This This is incredible. I would love to know like just like the differences inherent in magic without a wand. Like, yeah, that is, fascinating to me. Castella Brochu. This Brazilian school is located deep in the rainforest and accepts students from the whole South American continent. It is built as a square edifice of golden rock, often compared to a temple. Due to its location, this school is well known for its herbology and magizoology education and offers exchange programs for non-native wizards who wish to study the diverse life in the rainforest. And then, the last school we know anything about is Koldovsuritz, located in Russia. The one public detail about this mysterious academy is that its students play a game similar to Quidditch, but in which they fly on uprooted trees rather than brooms. Seems unwieldy. I can see Putin doing that. <laughs> yeah. However, this fact comes for a recently released children's edition of the books and nowhere else. So it's unclear whether it counts as canon. Not canon. Regardless, let's hope we learn more about Koldofsuritz and the remaining mysterious magical schools sometime soon. I'm so into this. Never stop creating, JK. Love it! Jason? Yeah. I don't show favoritism, me. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to give you some good general advice. I want to hear it. Man. And the first bit is play to your strengths. And one of them is splitting our nuggets. Split it. If not our souls, yeah. by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Goblet chapter 16 through 20. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one. Notable. Moody's eye can see through Harry's invisibility cloak. Why is this notable? Because when Luna's father describes how the hallow that is Harry's cloak, he says, we're talking about a cloak that really and truly renders the wearer completely invisible and endures eternally, giving constant and impenetrable concealment no matter what spells are cast at it. How many cloaks have you ever seen like that, Miss Granger? This When juxtaposed with Moody's ability to see through it and with Dumbledore's ability to do the same, which in interviews, Rowling has said stems from him non-verbally casting the hominem revelio spell, doesn't seem to drive. And yet, here we are. Either there's a discrepancy or Xenophilia slightly oversold the Hallows in vulnerability. Either way, Voldemort should have armed all his Death Eaters with magical eyes. Number two. Some more great moody foreshadowing in this span of chapters. Much like with his Lucius and Snape comments that we highlighted in our last episode, his it's my job to think the way dark wizards do line to Karkaroff is a big clue. He literally is a dark wizard. So, of course, he's thinking like one. Similarly, his insistence on drinking from his flask, even at the three broomsticks, while incurring Rosmerda's displeasure— Big polyjuice potion Easter egg right there. And then there are his dark detectors, the secrecy sensor, which Bard Eye says has been buzzing ever since he got mm-hmm. here because of the lying students. Can't trust a student. Of course, it's actually buzzing because Barty Crouch Jr. is impersonating Madame Moody, and that's Madame Moody's secrecy sensor. Much like Harry's sneakoscope was buzzing around Pettigrew yes. in Azkaban, right on cue. Bard Eye mentions that he had to disable 
His sneakers go, naturally, also, Moody's. Polyjuice can fool humans. Can't fool these objects. And them? Quote, oh, that's my faux glass. See them out there skulking around? I'm not really in trouble until I see the whites of their eyes. That's when I open my trunk. Later, in the climax of the book, as Barty is revealing his treachery to Harry, the forms of Harry's saviors will take shape in this faux glass. We'll talk about that more when we get there. And of course, the real Moody, he's in that trunk. Tough. Number three, speaking of our guy, Fred, this is very sad, but we can't help but note how sad it is in this moment. Fred grows that long white beard because he never had the chance to do so because, spoiler, our guy Fred will die. Number four, lots and lots and lots and lots of something is up with Barty Crouch clues in this stretch. We get an early line in these chapters. Quote, Mr. Crouch, however, looked quite uninterested, almost bored. This is not the vibe that we got from this guy at the Quidditch World Cup. Very focused on his work. Then in the side chamber after Harry is selected, we get this observation. Quote, Crouch, who was standing outside the circle of the firelight, his face half-hidden in shadow. He looked slightly eerie, the half-darkness making him look much older, giving him an almost skull-like appearance. Shortly thereafter, quote, Barty, want to do the honors? Mr. Crouch seemed to come out of a deep reverie. At which point, Harry thinks to himself that Crouch looks ill and observes that there are shadows under his eyes, a papery look to his skin, quote, that had not been there at the Quidditch World Cup. Dumbledore also notices this. He looks at Crouch, quote, with mild concern, asks if he wants to stay the night. And then... Crouch, as we already discussed, gives Harry a nine. Has to be a high score from Crouch. He's imperioed by his own son impersonating Moody to help Harry get through this tournament. We will learn all of this at the end of the book, that Senior was under the imperious curse this whole time, explaining his disposition, his appearance, and his actions. Number five. Lastly, there are a couple of small but really sweet second and third task clues. Okay, okay, I'll write to him, said Harry, throwing his last piece of toast in the lake. They both stood and watched it float there for a moment before a large tentacle rose out of the water and scooped it beneath the surface. We've gotten a lot of lake talk so far in this book, something about water, here with Dennis, etc., priming us to think about that body of water and what lies beneath. Just really, hey, remember that lake? Uh-huh. And Just that it's enough. there? Just, Just enough. enough to put it in your mind. And then in Harry's interview with Rita, among other places, he says, Er, many times. A great tease for the eventual Spider-Sphinx riddle in the third task. Love that. Number six. During the weighing of the wands, as Ollivander looks at Crumb's wand, he says, hmm, this is a Grigorovich creation, unless I'm much mistaken. A fine wand maker, though the styling is never quite what I... However, this is our first Grigorovich mention, which Mm -hmm. Harry will, after agonizing over where he's heard this name, finally recall in Hallows as Grigorovich's role in the Elder Wand's bloody history reveals itself. And number seven, more food for thought. When Fred, George, and Lee enter, aging potion in their blood, beards running down their chests, ready to enter their names into the goblet, Lee says, we're going to split the thousand galleons between the three of us if one of us wins. Did Fred and George share Harry's winnings with Lee when Harry gave them the prize money? Are they, a deal is a deal, my guys. Never have any mention of this as far as a we know. A deal is a deal, you shady motherfuckers. like to think that they would honor this. Sweet guys, love Lee, though we never hear that they shared it with Lee. Yeah, I feel like the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Tough stuff for Lee Jordan, if so. Mal? Yeah. The position of Mars with relation to Saturn at the moment means that people born in July are in great danger. Of sudden, violent podcasts. Well, that's good. Yeah. Just as long as it's not drawn out. 
I don't want today's champion to suffer. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last minute points and awarding the House Cup too. Harry James Potter. One of the easier picks we've had so far. My guy beat a dragon. He's alive. He beat a dragon. He's alive. He's got Ron back in his life. Got Ron back in his life. He's tied for first place. Flew in a manner that some would say exceeds the abilities of Vic. The dick. The big dick crumb. (laughs) (laughs) Look, ultimately, the fact that Harry performs well on this task is a bad thing because it allows Bardai's Voldemort-centric plan to continue. But in this moment here, Harry is finally feeling free again. He's alive. He's happy. He's back with his friends. And he hasn't yet had to start thinking about finding a date for the ball. Great time to be Harry. Shouts to Harry. Great, great, great time. Well, friends. Yes. Last podcast bundle, Dementors. This podcast bundle, Dragons. What are Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, going to bring into the studio next? Great. Madam Pomfrey wants to know. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey. Yes. And that you will join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing chapters 21 through 26 of Gobble to Fire. Till then, Bong Sewer! Oh, what is this? Why is it? I did not know you have little babies here at Hogwarts. <laughs> Hello, little baby. Did you lose your mommy? What is little baby doing here? Do they need us outside? Little baby, can you speak yet? I'm, uh, no, I'm the, f- my name came out of the Goblet of Fire. I'm the fourth champion. What? Before we go, let's talk about the Sonos Beam. I love my Sonos Beam. Great, great sound. Love the way my video games sound on it. Love the way Overwatch sounds on my Sonos Beam. Just fabulous. And the other thing, you can play it all. Yeah. Beam will enhance all your daily routines with incredible sound for shows, music, video games, podcasts like Binge Mode, Harry Potter, woo, audiobooks, or movie night. Setting Beam up is easy. Beam connects to your TV with just one cord and it syncs with your existing remote. So go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Sonos Beam to start your smart home sound system. That's Sonos, S-O-N-O-S, dot com.